Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1994, director James Cameron and star Arnold Schwarzenegger gave the world a thrilling escapade in the world of fighting terror, one catchphrase at a time. In 2024, we take a return trip to Scotland to try a space-side masterpiece. The film is True Lies. The whiskey is The Glen Roth's Ten Year. We'll review them both. This is The, the film, film and Whiskey, whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, Brad, we are returning to the realms of one of my favorite people. One, of, I mean, not just directors, just people, human beings on the face of the planet. Close, close personal friend. Close right? personal friend, noted great guy, James Cameron. <laughs> Man. And if ever I have been psyched to talk about a James Cameron movie with you, it is to talk about the 1994 banger of all bangers, True Lies. Brad, before we go any further with anything, I just want to immediately hit the brakes here and ask you, what was your familiarity with the movie True Lies before you sat down to watch it for this episode? I knew that Arnold was on the cover of the movie in like a suit and tie with a giant silver gun. And that's it? That That's about it, man. <laughs> Dude, that is, those are the ideal conditions under which to watch this movie. Because yes. I feel like this is a, this is still a well-regarded movie, like especially in, in James Cameron's catalog, but it comes between Terminator 2 and Titanic in his oeuvre. And so I think it's always been kind of regarded as like a minor entry into the Jim Cameron catalog. But and we and we're here to set the records. Yeah, on. first of all, absolutely not. But what I love about it is that it kind of is. And I love it. I love that. I love it when auteurs like James Cameron make genre movies that don't have any ambition besides let's make a freaking awesome movie. And then he just succeeds at all levels. And I think when we did, you know, we did Aliens, we've done Titanic, we've done Terminator and Terminator 2. You've always been a little bit iffy on Cameron. And I've tried to explain to you, like, just from a pure filmmaking standpoint, I don't know if there's ever been a better action filmmaker than James Cameron. 
And I think this movie, honestly, because it, it doesn't have those ambitions, might be the best example of that. This is like the purest essence of James Cameron that I've ever seen distilled on screen. Man, I you are setting the bar high here, Bob. I, I mean, for me, T2 is like maybe the best action movie of all time. And so I, I don't know if True Lies is quite there. That that feels like what you're setting the stage for. But Bob, I had a hell of a good time with this film. Oh, I'm so excited, man. I was really worried that you were going to be watching this movie thinking this is this is garbage. But my first glimmer of hope was three weeks ago when we watched the absolute train wreck dumpster fire that was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And you came in here and said, dudes rule. This movie's great. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, true lies might work on this guy. That man, Robin Hood still takes me by surprise how much fun I had with that movie. <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if fun is the word that I would use for that. But fun is absolutely the word I would use for this movie. And we have brought along our resident dudes rule uh, co-host for the occasion. Last season, we had him on to talk about Point Break. This season, he said, let's one up that. I've done Catherine Bigelow movies. Now let's talk about James Cameron. It's our friend Vince Mancini. Vince, how are you doing today, man? Oh, I'm happy to be here. Dudes rocking is absolutely <laughs> my lane, and I'm very another thing that that uh, you don't hear about True Lies. It's like it's James Cameron's only comedy, really. Yes, like, he doesn't really have any other movies that are comedic, and this is. This is like James Cameron was like, I'm going to do Lethal Weapon and it's going to be awesome. And then you get this movie. Yeah. I Like, I, guys, I can't wait to dive into this movie. It was everything we said last week about The Fugitive and how much it is purely entertaining. I still stand by that. And like, let's be honest here. The Fugitive overall, probably a better film than True Lies. I don't know if I have more fun watching The Fugitive as I have this movie, though, on a, just a pure shit blowing up. Tom Arnold level like this movie clearly takes the cake in that department. I, I like true lies better. I'm going to say it. I think there's like underrated moments of just pure like action movie writing genius in this mm -hmm. beyond the fact that, you know, it's kind of, I consider it kind of like a parody. It sort of rides, rides the line between like a parody and like a, an earnest action movie, but uh, like just some of the stunts and set pieces, like I don't think they've been, equaled in an action movie like the i mean just the final scene i, I mean yeah. I, I don't want to jump the gun on it but like <laughs> just i don't think anyone's written a better action set piece than that well guys i don't think we should be it around the bush any longer here uh brad let's dive into our first segment of the day which we call brad explains brad's gonna give us the movie plots with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock so let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. This is absolutely Brad's first time seeing True Lies. I'm Brad, I'm I'm like I want to get to the meat of this episode. I'm not going to fill it with filler here. You have a minute on the clock to spoil this movie. Folks, if you have not seen True Lies, you are doing yourself a disservice. Press pause here. Go have a super fun 2 hours and 20 minutes. And then come back and listen to Brad explain it. Brad, one minute on the clock and go. True Lies is a film about a globe-trotting super spy terrorist hunter played by Arnold Schwarzenegger 
who is married and has a kid, and they have no idea that he is a super spy. His wife ends up almost having an affair with a used car salesman, which sets them down this path of their worlds colliding. There are terrorists that have a nuke. It blows up off the Florida Keys. Arnold and Jamie Lee Curtis are making out. It's incredible. That's the movie. Dudes rock. That's dudes. Dudes rock. Also, Jamie Lee Curtis rocks. Dude, she's incredible. Like, I I don't. I think I've always kind of slept on her a little bit because growing up, I remember seeing her in like Freaky Friday and Christmas with the Cranks, and that was like my Jamie Lee Curtis exposure. Mm -mm. And then I saw her in Everything Everywhere All at Once. Now I've seen her in this. I had, she's been in one or two other films we've seen. Isn't she, Bob? Well, we haven't watched Halloween for this podcast yet, but obviously that's where sure. she makes her big debut. Yes. Y- yeah. I mean, this is, I don't know, man. This might be like the definitive Jamie Lee Curtis movie for me. I don't know if uh, yeah, I, any I, I movie. I would agree with that. Yeah. I feel like it's between this and A Fish Called Wanda for her two, uh, like, top two roles for me. But this one, like, the range is... Yes. Insane. I was just going to say, I just watched A Fish Called Wanda for the first time about six months ago, and I liked mm-hmm. it, and it was goofy and it was silly, but like this uses her physicality so well, and she she's playing essentially two different roles between like the the quiet, conservative, mousy housewife, and then like immediately thrust into, now you have to be a sex pot and an action star, and it's just like, she does all of it so, so well. We'll get into talking about all of these performances Brad, let's set the stage for this movie a little bit here. Two hours, 20 minutes. We are typically proponents of the 90-minute movie. This is much Mm. longer than that. Is this movie too long? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's... (laughs) See, here's the thing. I remember saying this a little bit about T2, but I feel like the first Terminator and Avatar and some other films, it just feels like Cameron sits in his action sequences a little too long and not necessarily like the entire arc of an individual action sequence. It's, it's like little moments. So like when Jamie Lee Curtis is reaching out the back of the limousine and trying to reach, you know, and and reach Arnold's hand and, and get pulled out, she tries like five times to do it and it should have been three. Mm-hmm. And when the, when the Harrier is trying to ca- uh, catch Eliza Dushka, Dushku, Dushka, yeah, Dushku, sorry. And it's trying to catch her. It tries to catch her like five times and it should have been two or three times. And I, I feel like that happens a few times throughout. But that's the last time you'll hear me talk bad about this movie. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to get it out of the way here. And I remember thinking, I, you know, I watched this movie again. I've seen it a couple times, but I watched it in two sittings last night and today. I stopped at the 45 minute mark and went to bed last night. And I was already thinking this movie's too long. And I got to the end of the movie today and I was like, this movie's too long. It needs to lose 20 minutes somewhere. And then I watched it on Amazon Prime where you can kind of like hover over the timeline and see little like snapshots of every moment. And so I just kind of like browsed through the whole movie. And I was like, what can can I get rid of? Where do you actually make cuts? That's the thing is like. The totality of it is too much movie, but that's kind of what Jim Cameron does. He's like, my movie's going to be too much and deal with it. And I, I can't really complain about that. 
I'm I'm totally with you on the idea. Just the idea. I mean, this is like a fun action comedy parody romp, and the idea that it's over two hours like is. Uh, like just the idea of it uh, like i agree that it should be shorter um as far as like this the stunt um on the helicopter with the limousine and the harrier like to me those are great because he's actually building suspense into his action sequences and that's something that like modern action movie directors don't do and so many modern action movies are just like so boring to me um even like the John Wick series that people love, it's all these tracking shots of him doing like completely meaningless, like chop suey and like doing, like how many times can I see John Wick shoot somebody in the head from close range with a pistol? Like I get so bored with it. I actually walked out of the latest John Wick movie about 25 minutes into it because it was so boring to me. But like this, it's, like James Cameron understands an action movie, an action set piece in the way that there is a, it's like a joke. There's a setup, there's a complication and there's a payoff and there's like mm-hmm. this complex ballet and choreography. Like it's this whole slapstick dance and it's not just like, it's not just this trick of, 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 of fist choreography. Like I love fighting and I love, and I'm a big combat sports guy, but like to see that in a movie is very boring to me. Like you got to go bigger. And I feel like he goes bigger in the way that he makes you wait for that payoff. Like the, with like her reaching out, like I was so into it because it's very frustrating to watch where she's like, just, just grab his goddamn hand. But it's like, he managed to build suspense into, into that scene in yeah. a way that I love. I, I mean, if it could lose any, and I, and I, and I don't disagree that I could probably lose like 10, 15 minutes, but I feel like if it's anywhere, it's maybe in the scene where like he's going up the elevator with the horse, like that, that sequence, <laughs> uh, where he's chasing that guy early in the movie. Here's the thing about this movie. Great. Yeah. I was gonna say that's, that should have been just the promo. He rides a horse up an elevator. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, the thing about this film is that it rules. And yeah. you can string together any words in a sentence, and it probably is in this movie somewhere. There is a set piece 20 minutes into this movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger is chasing terrorists through a hotel on horseback while terrorists are driving motorcycles through this hotel. And guess what? It's freaking awesome. And, <laughs> yeah. and I realized as I watched Arnold galloping on horseback that... This movie is Cameron at his most Spielbergian. Like so much of the action in this is is reminiscent of what Spielberg likes to do, especially in the Indiana Jones movies. I just feel like there's a ton of that kind of tone here where I wouldn't call it tongue in cheek, but like it's lighthearted. Like there's it's always a, a there's a glee to it. Like you can yes. tell he's having a, a fun. I mean, to me, it's. It's to me, it's, it, it, the whole thing feels like James Cameron saw Lethal Weapon 2 and was like, hold my beer. Like, oh, you want to have someone like, because Shane Black loves the device of someone like jumping off a roof, like into a pool. And then mm-hmm. James Cameron's like, all right, how can I? Because I don't think James Cameron is that original of a thinker, but he is like a brilliant filmmaker and like a set piece designer and a technician. And like that whole uh horse riding up the elevator like it feels very Shane Black to me but he's like how can I how can I one up this guy and it doesn't have to be that original cuz watching James Cameron try to one up someone is incredibly entertaining every time yeah 
I mean, we we talked about this, Brad, especially with T2, but the way that the guy establishes the geography of his action set pieces. And let's flash forward again. We we keep going back and forth with this movie. This is why I tell people to watch the movie before they watch they listen to the episode, because we're not moving in sequential order here. The film has basically a false ending. You think everything is wrapped up. And then Cameron says, you didn't you, you paid good money to be here. Let's give you 20 more minutes of Arnold Schwarzenegger in a fighter jet fighting terrorists inside an office building. And it is glorious. But the the way that he establishes the geography of the floor that they're holding his daughter hostage on the stairwell leading up to the roof, the roof itself, the crane that's hanging off of the roof, like the the building that has a giant hole in it now from where Arnold Schwarzenegger blew through it with a machine gun and it can now fire a missile through like everything involved in that extended sequence is set up so, so well. And I think where as much as I like a good Michael Bay movie, I think where a lot of action filmmakers went in the late 90s and the 2000s is if I just have really rapid edits people will piece this together. But there really aren't any filmmakers out there today that are able to establish that sense of place in an action sequence the way Cameron is. I mean, they talk about when you when people say like someone's playing 10 dimensional chess, like uh, James Cameron is absolutely doing that. Like he, mm-hmm. he like you're so right. I mean, that's another thing that I find so boring about most action movies is they don't establish a sense of spatial awareness in the scene that they're shooting and yeah like you said like that whole sequence with the harrier and the and the skyscraper like he thought it completely through on every level and all of the all of the geography of it checks out and it makes it so much more exciting because of that so what do you think it's going to take to get our boy jim out of the like avatar a movie every 10 years universe and make another true lies type of film. I don't think he's ever going to come out. Like, I think he's going to die in on Pandora. I think it's more likely that he recreates Pandora in the real world than that. He ever actually leaves it at this point. <laughs> Brad, let's yeah, he go. Kinda, he's trying to do that. He has like an orchard in New Zealand and like a <laughs> vineyard down there. He's like dyeing his skin blue as we as we speak. <laughs> I mean, how many other people? Because I it, like if you look back at James Cameron's career, it is kind of what he does. Like he saw, uh, you know, he he was like, oh, Alien, or no, sorry, not Alien, but well, yeah, Alien also. But like he took uh, Ridley Scott, and he's like, how can I one up this guy? Mm-hmm. And he fucking did it. Like nobody, yeah. who else could do that? And then he, yeah, he does. He keeps doing that, and no one else could possibly even attempt that i noticed how early on he was throwing down the gauntlet when i turned on this movie and vince to give you some context last week we talked about the fugitive my one of my biggest drawbacks of the movie the fugitive a film which i like a lot is that the director andrew davis has like no sense of style like you just Mm. that movie could be directed by like joe schmo and you wouldn't like There's nothing distinctive about it. There's nothing distinctive about the look of that film. It's very flat looking. I said that it looks like TV more than a movie. The second this movie starts, it it is this infiltration of Arnold Schwarzenegger going into this party full of, I don't know, like some Nazis. I don't know what they are like. They all speak German, but like he's infiltrating terrorists at this giant gala where he has to wear a tuxedo and he scuba dives in. 
And the look of this sequence, we, we know that we are in like a frozen wasteland of the Alps somewhere. It has this blue tinted look. It's very similar to the look of the end of Titanic when they're all in the water. And just the use of contrast, the use of shadows within five minutes, Brad, I made a note in my phone. I was like, this is what a movie looks like. This looks 50 times better than The Fugitive that came out one year earlier than this. It just feels so much more. I don't know what the word is like, like an event than uh, The Fugitive yeah. did. This. Yeah. I mean, everything about it feels so uh, expensive. He was just mm-hmm. like, how can I make this look? I mean, there's the. the there is odd things about it. Like I feel like watching this in uh, full HD is a little bit uh, a little bit different than I remember because I've saw seen this movie like a million times. But um, yeah, watching it now in full HD, uh, I can really see like the makeup that Tom Arnold and, Ar- and Arnold Schwarzenegger like they're wearing <laughs> a ton of makeup, but everybody has this glow to them that just makes it feel uh like hyper real and i kind of think that is intentional because like i said it is it does feel like kind of a parody of the 80s action movie yeah and i i think one of the things that keeps me in the film as you go is this balance i I think he strikes a really delicate balance here between like the home life of arnold and the work life and he the the pacing where he slowly brings those two things together is just immaculately done. Yeah, so this movie is really evenly split into three acts and then like a bonus ending. But like the first act is basically you get acclimated to who Arnold is and you have this initial pursuit of the terrorists and you see Arnold's work life with just a little sprinkling of like Jamie Lee Curtis and his daughter. The second act is like a full-blown mistaken identity, almost like 1930s Cary Grant kind of comedy. And then the third act is like a buddy team-up action movie. And it is it it doesn't seem like it should work because they are so distinct from each other, even in terms of their tone. Like that first 45 minutes, there's jokes, and Tom Arnold is doing a lot of the, like, or trying at least to do a lot of the heavy lifting in the comedy department. But it's super serious, like it's it's manly action. And then the middle part is is such a farce that it's like it's almost like whiplash, like all the stuff with Bill Paxton is like, I can't believe this is the same movie as this bathroom shootout I was watching a half hour ago. But to your point, Brad, the way he ties it together by the end of it, you're like, it works. All of it works. I can't explain how, but this is very uniquely a James Cameron vision. I don't know about you guys. The The bathroom shootout just reminded me a little bit of Mission Impossible. Oh, yeah. When yeah. he's fighting Henry Cavill fight. There is something there that I was just like, oh, come on, man. This is incredible. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of filmmakers that ripped directly from True Lies. I mean, this whole thing it plays like an origin story for Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think Mr. and Mrs. Smith exists uh, without... True Lies and um, and like the entire Mission Impossible series uh, with Tom Cruise talking to Simon uh, Pegg on a on a headset like that feels directly taken from True Lies. 
Um, and another thing that I didn't understand about True Lies until, I don't know, like this last rewatch where I actually was trying to find out, like, who shot this? Like, wh- who wrote this? Like, this is so mm-hmm. incredible. I didn't realize that it was a remake of a French movie, but like the whole... The whole Three's Company vibe uh, makes complete sense when you think when you realize that it's a remake of a French movie for some reason. <laughs> like that feels very French to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and it's funny too where Cameron allows the film to get like kind of sexy, and also where he it's it's very American in how chaste it is. Like mm-hmm. the Jamie Lee Curtis yeah. is she cheating on him or is she not cheating on him? They go like they go to great lengths to keep her from having any moral gray in that situation. And it's so funny because Arnold is doing heinous ethical shit to her. <laughs> but but like, because we've been yeah. with Arnold for 45 minutes, we're like, it's, it's excusable, but she can't cheat on him or even like get close to cheating on him. You know? So I just, I do think it's funny it's... though, like where it becomes very Americanized, you know? Yeah, it's a it's a beer commercial. I mean, it feel like mm-hmm. that whole plot line feels like a beer commercial where it's like, oh man, Jamie Lee Curtis was a conservative secretary, and then someone <laughs> sprayed her with Budweiser. Now she's stripping around on a pole, and like she's 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 going wild, everybody, and uh, and just to like watch that process, like it's total pure Hollywood um, in a way that like when someone like Michael Bay does it, I feel like you kind of dismiss it because it's just like one level too stupid. But like the performances <laughs> in this are so good that it's just like pure entertainment. And you just you just want to watch them. You want to watch Jamie Curtis, Jamie Lee Curtis perform that scene. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I was going to say the the performances for me are what are just incredible here. Like I think Arnold is at, at the absolute top of his game here. I think Jamie Lee Curtis, we already talked about her a little bit. I freaking loved Bill Paxton. Ugh. I don't yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen a hammier, sleazier performance and it's perfect. It's exactly like, what is needed for this yes, movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I love Tom Arnold too. I think this is some of Tom Arnold's best work. Like I know he's in like he's doing Tom Arnold extra mode, but uh mm-hmm. I think it works and like yeah, Bill Paxton is like a riff on uh, uh James Woods in Casino but played for comedy. Oh, mm-hmm. so good. The thing about Tom Arnold, and I, I will say, like, if there's anyone in the movie that kind of grates on me, it's Tom Arnold. And it's not because he's Tom <laughs> Arnold, because I think he does like he has some really great timing. It's it's that, you know, that he is so obviously like the James Cameron conduit 
like all of James Cameron's attitudes towards marriage and women and like they just they all make their way out of the mouth of Tom Arnold at some point. And it's it's this really like if you wanted to psychoanalyze Cameron through this movie, it's pretty clear that like Arnold is who he thinks he is and Tom Arnold is who he actually is in terms of like his <laughs> attitudes, his values, his ethics. Uh, and so like, you know, Brad, I talked about how I, th I think the movie can lose 20 minutes. I honestly think that like if you cut 75% of Tom Arnold's lines, you would get a better sense of like, you know exactly who the character is, but there would be a lot less like cringe inducing opinions on different kinds of humans uh, than there <laughs> like than there already are in this movie. And that that's the thing for me, though, that makes you talked earlier about how. Arnold does like some heinous moral and ethical things to his wife. I think the reason you're on his side is because you see how like honestly dejected he is and how angry he gets when Tom Arnold is suggesting that like, oh, this is just a normal thing that happens to everybody and you should just get used to it. And you can see like Arnold takes everything so seriously in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like he is passionately all about being a husband and passionately all about being a spy and and the way he does it feels almost childlike in his sincerity and i it just drew me in man i i think arnold's performance was like the key for me throughout this film yes i also think tom arnold is absolutely necessary because one of the things i'll say about james cameron is like of all action directors he um has notably like more like less bad politics than your average action movie director and i think without <laughs> without tom arnold this movie is almost like uh deep state like operator propaganda because like arnold is too good and you need I mean, sorry, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character is, like, too good, and you need mm -hmm. Tom Arnold's character there to remind you that, like, no, these guys are actually pieces of shit. Like, like the things <laughs> they're, they're doing are not, like, that good, really. <laughs> like, you need to him, to him there to remind you what, like, the baseline, uh, you know, FBI, CIA agent is like. Yeah, and, and nowhere is that better encapsulated than how he tries to give relationship advice by saying... This is the quote. We're going to catch some terrorists. We're going to beat the crap out of them. And you're going to feel a hell of a lot better. And like, I, I just love that. Like, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're going to resolve this by going to work. And what we do at work is we torture people. And like, <laughs> it, it's just it's funny, but it's also like, oh, this is a little more prescient than even maybe Cameron realized. And I think that's that's one of my favorite things about this movie is that for as much as Cameron is doing like the macho dudes rock thing. Brad, I think this is a much better movie about marriage than it realizes that it is. And you know, the lies that we tell to our spouses or don't tell to our spouses, the effects of those things. Also, like there's some really interesting ethical things about national security. You know, like he asked Tom Arnold to put a, a tap on his wife's phone and Tom Arnold's like, that's illegal. It's a felony. We can't do it. And he pins him up against the wall and he's like, we do it 20 times a day. Like, what's different about this one? I'm like, oh, I did not yeah. expect them to explore this kind of territory in this movie. And I just I love that you get those little touches throughout. But luckily, they they don't like 
dives so deeply into that that you can tell it's like an anti-America propaganda movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they just yeah. throw it in there. It's ki- it's a joke, but it's also kind of like a little bit biting. Sure. And then they move on. Yeah. And like that's what this movie needs to be. And I, I think that's Cameron's kind of superpower is that he always knows whether it's within an individual scene or, you know, first act, second act, third act of a movie or the whole movie as, uh, you know, all together, he always seems to know what his movie needs at any given moment. All right, guys, let's talk really briefly. I mean, we've already talked a little bit about Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, I was surprised to learn when I was researching the movie, I didn't realize she won the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy for this movie. She does not get a nomination at the Oscars, but you know, I I had always I kind of had bought into this uh, narrative last year with her Oscar win that she had like never really been recognized by an awards body before, and I'm at least glad to see that somebody was giving her her due for this film because, as good as Arnold is, and I Brad, I really think that this might be the like the platonic ideal of maximizing everything Arnold can give you in a movie. I still think she kind of wins the movie. Like she is so so good i mean when the you know when they need her to be goofy she is the the entire sequence where she has to go in and strip in front of arnold it works on every single level that it could possibly be interpreted as like right before she walks in and she's like ripping the dress apart to look more sexy and they have that nice little beat at the end where her heel kind of buckles under her so you get the like i'm still awkward You know, Mm -hmm. you have the famous flub that they've always talked about of her, you know, falling off of the bedpost and Arnold didn't realize it was going to happen. And so you see him kind of jump up all the character beats they give her. She plays them perfectly, but there is such a physicality. And then, like, there are moments where it's like she is supposed to look unbelievably sexy right now. She is supposed to be convincing at this. And she does it. And like, you know, Brad, we don't we don't often talk about, like, our attraction to people in films on this podcast, but like Jamie Lee Curtis, unbelievably sexy in this movie. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like that was the point of this character at many times. And she pulls it off. When you take this performance as a whole, this is the kind of thing where I'm like, where were, where were the Oscars in 1994 to at the very least give her a nomination for this? Yeah. She's like klutzy, mousy, sexy. I mean, a, a lot of the older generation of female comedians will talk about how they you know they deliberately sort of toned down their hotness because they didn't want that to be like a focal point when they were trying to tell jokes because they didn't think people could laugh and have a boner at the same time Uh, and then in this like she's doing three stooges level slapstick at the same time as she's doing like a sexy strip tease that absolutely yeah. works on the level of it being like, yeah, that's an actually sexy strip tease. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it's yeah. In, incredible what she pulls off in that scene and in the whole movie and, the, and just like the cartoonishness of her character, because she is cartoonishly conservative. Uh, that's like her character before, you know, she, before that scene. And like, I don't think, many people could pull off that part of the movie without it being just like sort of lame and cartoony. And Mm -hmm. she somehow makes you believe it both on both levels. And and that's like this film, like you said, Vince, it kind of hovers on this line of parody continually. And, and for her role, she plays into that trope of like, 
housewife that wants to go on an adventure. Mm-hmm. And yet it never falls into a a stale parody or a, you know, a mockery of that trope. And it's because she has this incredible talent for being sincere and authentic. Mm-hmm. And you never lose sight of the conservative, slightly klutzy housewife, even as they move into her being, you know, a sexy spy by the end of the film. Yeah, I think what both of you guys are trying to say, too, and and we've talked about this with Cameron, he's just really good at writing female heroines. Like, he's really, really good at it. And he doesn't objectify her in either direction. Like, it never feels like, oh, it's time for her to be sexy, and we're going to do, like, the Michael Bay, male gazy Megan Fox thing. But he also doesn't like he's not looking down on her when she is the mousy housewife either. Like she always has this sense of agency. And for me, the key scene into not just being like a good action movie performance, but like, oh, this is really good. Is that interrogation scene when she's gotten kidnapped by Arnold and and Tom Arnold and they're they're uh, behind uh, one way glass talking to her. And she's she's emotional. She's breaking down because she's frightened and she's scared. But then they're asking her questions that are making her question her decisions about whether she wanted to cheat on her husband. And then you get the rage and she's she's smashing the glass with a stool and like the whole gamut she goes through in like six minutes. And it's just it is an absolute masterclass. And the writing of that scene is so excellent. Also, just in terms of, you know, they've established Arnold as, you know, like this cartoonish super spy character. But then in that scene, he's also kind of like a sixth grader, like passing notes through the glass. Like, mm-hmm. do you like me? Yes or no? Like, that's the <laughs> level that he's operating. It's very, it's very sort of naive and, uh, and innocent, which is, um, you know, like it's a, it's an interesting way that they wrote that. Like, you don't mm-hmm. expect it to go there and you know i think they're sort of riffing on james bond and a little bit too here where it's you know james bond is this guy who just like you know he's sort of like a living playboy cartoon a guy that wears like nice suits and goes and bangs chicks in different countries or whatever and then (laughs) you know and then the, the, the james cameron sort of doing that but giving you this sort of uh cartoon norman rockwell version of it mm-hmm. where he's a super spy but he's also incredibly faithful and he just he just wants to know that his wife loves him like it's yeah <laughs> like, I, like it works uh, again it works earnestly but it also works as just a beautiful parody of action movies in general mm-hmm. yeah and i think that like the character that is written for jamie lee just has Like the moments when she's with Bill Paxton, you can tell that she is being objectified, right, by Bill Paxton. And he is a sleazeball, and that's the wrong way to treat women. And when Arnold brings her in and she's doing the striptease, Cameron, like, specifically gives her screen time where she is making choices to embrace this role. Mm. You know, whereas Paxton was forcing her into it and seducing her into it. Mm Later, she gets to choose how to engage the role of playing this stripper. Yeah. She chooses yes. to rip the stuff off of her dress. She chooses how to do the striptease and things like that. Right. She ends up choosing to punch him in the face and plant the bug and try to get out. Yeah. And there, there's so much where Cameron gives his women choice. And I feel like that's kind of a consistent thing with his female characters 
that he writes in his other films as well. Well, and I like so there's a moment right after that scene, and it's one of my favorite moments in the movie. They're in the room together. You get the reveal that it's actually Harry, her husband, who has been watching her do this strip tease. And before they get a chance to even have like this marital argument, terrorists burst into the room and kidnap both of them. <laughs> and it is just this wacky contrivance. Yeah. And like you're off to the races in this sort of slapstick comedy again, this farce. And you get this great moment where she still doesn't understand, even though he's in the room with her, that he is a he's the spy. She thinks that he's been placed there by whoever these people who are playing her are, and she thinks she's a spy. So every time Arnold starts to say something, she's like, please let me handle this. I know what <laughs> yeah, I'm shut doing. Shut up, honey. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's great because she's clearly ignorant in this situation, but the jokes are never really at her expense. They're never like they're never making it seem like she's dumb. She's just doing what she knows to do. And I think that. What's great about the comedy in this movie is it always lands on that charming side of things instead of like being at her expense, because mm -hmm. I've seen enough crappy Marvel comedy over the last 15 years now that like there's a way that these jokes could go that just don't land at all. And they undercut everything that you've built up to that. But the jokes in this movie are born out of that relationship instead of undermining it. I, I was kind of curious as I was watching this. I feel like one of the things that gets laid at Marvel's feet often is this like all of their movies are comedies now, but they're not like comedies. That's an action movie with some comedy in it. And I, I was thinking about that as I was watching this film, because it, it feels for a while like it's an action movie with some comedy in it. But I'm curious where you guys fall on the the genrefication of mm -hmm. this, like like it, because to, to me, I like the word parody. I, I do like the idea that it's parodying a comedy and parodying other action films, and it becomes something better than either because of it. Yeah, I don't know if I would call it like a full parody, just because like, you know, in the 80s, I think it, you get like the apex of the parody movie, like starting with Airplane and then all the Naked Gun movies, uh, there's a Val Kilmer movie called Top Secret that that parodies all these spy movies. And the thing in those movies is like even the action is getting made fun of. Like the action is is ridiculous and like not logical, not plausible. I was just watching a clip from that movie Top Secret the other day and they're they're like they're having a shootout from inside a building and they're shooting out the windows and like they're actually playing tic-tac-toe with the windows as they're like shooting. Like it's 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 all played for laughs. And I think this movie is I would call it a comedy. But it's not like the action is absolutely being done in earnest, even when the action is even when you have a terrorist hanging from a missile by the strap of his AK-47 being shot through a hole in a building into a helicopter full of other terrorists. I think Cameron is like, this is a ridiculous premise, but I'm going to take it really seriously in the execution of it. And I think that's the difference yeah. for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think it's a full parody. Definitely like on the level of Naked Gun or Top Secret. It's sort of it feels like it's a like a winking satire of the whole action movie um, genre. And 
Yeah, just that final set piece where he shoots a terrorist who's hanging on a missile through a building and hits a <laughs> helicopter. I mean, it's hilarious. Like, it's hilarious, but it's also, like, exciting. And um, it sort of lives on that level of, like, things that you know are not plausible, but you want to see happen just because it's yeah fun. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's a moment right before that where Arnold first shows up in the fighter jet where, like... You can hear the hum of the engine inside the building and all the terrorists are like looking through the windows with their binoculars trying to figure out. And then Arnold rises up from beneath them (laughs) and it is simultaneously the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And also I was like, I love America. Like I I was so happy to see. And then he just like, what are the machine guns called, Brad, that spray like a thousand rounds? Uh, like a minigun. Yeah, whatever. Like, to see him take out a full level of this building, I was just like, does does cinema get better than this? And the answer is, yeah, no, it like, does not. No, it doesn't. And it's like, it's working as a sight gag, but also just as a set piece simultaneously, because just like the visual of that, shooting out a level of windows in, a, in like a glass skyscraper like so wonderful and it's like he doesn't fully he doesn't tell you like yes this is badass and he doesn't tell you yes this is a joke because like it's it's both like it's gonna make you smile and you're like oh man that's awesome (laughs) also this movie just is incredible i mentioned this earlier a nuclear bomb goes <laughs> off in the Florida Keys, everybody. No, no, it doesn't just go. Yeah. So first of all, it goes off and we're not going to dwell on the ramifications of that at all. Right. <laughs> but no. not only does it go off, it goes off as they kiss. And it is the it is the <laughs> accentuation point behind their kiss. And I am like, this is the most brilliant thing anyone has ever thought to put on. It's so freaking cool. That I like, I don't want to think about the the radiation fallout. I don't think about any of that. I don't care. Like I get to see Arnold and Jamie Lee Curtis embrace as a bomb goes off behind them. That is pure cinema. Take, take I also that, think Michael that's Bay. a perfect satire of Americana. Like the like the idea that a nuclear bomb is going to go off and we're just going to be like, oh yeah, that's crazy. But also uh, the guy's going to kiss the girl and everybody's going to be cheering and it's going to be like a cool moment. We're not going to think about the nuclear winter or no. th- <laughs> that you just you just irradiated like a 12 mile uh, circle of uh, marine life. It's just like, oh man, he got the girl. Awesome. Well, guys, on that note, uh, as we talk about murdering marine life and nuclear winter, Uh, I think it's time for us to hit pause. Brad, we have a trip to Scotland to go to. We're going to try some Speyside single malt scotch whiskey today. What do you say we go sample some Glen Rhodes? We're just jumping on a plane and going over, huh? (laughs) You know it, man. (laughs) Let's get to it. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers.
All right, so today we are checking out the Glen Rhodes Speyside Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. This is the 10-year version of the Glen Rhodes. Brad, this is not the first entry from Glen Rhodes that we've had on the show. We were sent samples of a Glen Rhodes product by a listener, and I also happened to pick up a bottle of Glen Rhodes 10 when it was being uh, discontinued in the state of Ohio. And I thought that the sample that we got and the bottle that I bought were the same. And it wasn't until we sat down to record that we noticed that the samples that we had last season were from a bottle called the Glen Rhodes Bourbon Cask Reserve. So we we uh, doubled up, you know, it's kind of nice. We got to knock out two expressions of a whiskey brand in one go, basically. So we're finally getting around to this Glen Rhodes 10 year. Like I said, this is a space side scotch. Brad, if you you know, we've been talking about this all season. If you had to decide between the two, are you more of a space side or a Highland guy? Man, that, that's kind of tough. I think I would lean towards Speyside, mm. but I, man, Glenmorangie. That's the thing, yeah. Mm. If only one okay, distillery yeah. could survive from either of the two regions, like, you know I'm a Glenmorangie yeah, guy. To, yeah, it would have to be Glenmorangie. Yeah, I'm with you, man. Uh, so this one is, it's aged exclusively in sherry, I guess, ex-sherry casks of American and European oak origin. They are what's called first fill casks. I know we've talked a little bit about first fill before, but it is a fancy way of saying this is the first time we have filled them. We, the Glen Rhodes Company. They held other <laughs> things before, so they're definitely used, but we promise, we promise, this is the first time we've used them. I just think that's such a hilarious expression because it sounds like they're using fresh wood and they're absolutely not. It kind of sounds like when you get married and find out that your partner has not only been with you. <laughs> it's kind of like, I, I promise, this is my first fill with you. Yeah, and, and it's even better because on the box it says that the barrels that they use are first fill, but they are sherry seasoned. <laughs> it's like, no, they were sherry casks. They're not just, yeah. you know, that's like, we to just... continue your analogy, you know, yes, Brad, like I'm marrying you. But I am also like Chad seasoned. You know what I mean? Like, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> it's like they took a basting brush yes. and just like brushed some <laughs> sherry on the inside of the cask. All right, man. Let's dive into this whiskey. What are you picking up on the nose of this Glen Rose 10 year? This Glen Rose is a really light nose. There's some honey. There's some kind of florally rose petal type of notes going on. I got a tiny bit of spiciness here. It almost reminded me of like a ginger. Mm -hmm. um, there's some citrus notes, but uh, overall, it's it's a little bit ethereal. Uh, I, I think I'd give it a 7 out of 10, Bob. Yeah, it's definitely very bright. And, I, and when I say bright, I usually get citrus on it. And, and then we typically either get like melon notes or for me, it's like stone fruit. And I think I'm getting more of that today. It's a lot of peach. It's a lot of pear. Uh, to go along with like a lemon, almost like a lemon black tea. It's really, really nice, but it smells inoffensive. This is only a 40% uh, ABV, 80 proof product. So I'm not expecting a lot of punch here, and I'm definitely not getting it. But I really like this nose. I'm going to go ahead and give it a 7.5 and hope that it gets a little bit more complex as we go through the tasting. Yeah, I, I, I hate to disappoint you, Bob. I, I don't know <laughs> if it got... Uh... If it got any more complex, it definitely didn't get worse or anything, 
Um, the there was some light caramel notes that came through that were really pleasant. Uh, the honey turned into a, like a nice deep honeycomb. Um, there's a little bit of that stone fruit. I would almost call it a prune flavor. And then you, you definitely get the sherry influence. There's a bit of a grape flavor going on here. It's good. Not great. Uh, I'll give it a six and a half, Bob. Man, it it felt like it was playing tricks on me because it's pretty immediately like smoke and uh, like raw bitter grain. And then as you go to swallow, it's like, all right, I'm going to turn this up. I'm going to continue the intensity of this. And it just keeps getting more and more and more bitter. Like it's really bitter. And it's almost kind of like if you if you eat a fruit and you accidentally like bite into a seed, like if you get into the core on accident and it's just like, Mm. oh, this was not meant for human consumption, like this part of this fruit, because those fruit notes are still there a little bit. But it just continues to get more and more bitter. Even after I swallow, I'm not a fan of the flavor of this one, man. I'm only going to give it a five out of ten. Mm. Yeah, I, I think for me, the 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 bitterness came through on the finish. Like after I had finished drinking it and it sat there for a little bit, it, it turned a little bit sour, a little bit bitter. The, there was a pop of spice at the end that I liked. Uh, the citrus notes kind of finally came through, but it almost tasted like kind of like an orange that had gone bad. Mm. Uh, I'm with you, man. It, <laughs> it's not necessarily my favorite. Uh, I'll drop down to a six here. You're, you're picking up those penicillin notes that we all crave Ooh. so much in our whiskey. Tasty. Um, okay, second sip was much better than the first sip. I think I just needed to get acclimated a little bit. However, I will say that like, Okay, admittedly, it's not ideal that I just drank coffee before we started recording. Bob. However, what are you, hold on. What are you doing, hold man? On. I would think that drinking coffee would prepare me for the bitter notes in a whiskey because coffee's bitter. And this is like significantly more bitter than that coffee was. So, uh, again, after the first sip, I'm drinking it live. I know you had it in the past already, Brad. I still would stand by my original score of just a five on the flavor. I think the finish definitely went up in my estimation. It's a lot softer once you start to get acclimated to it. I'll bump it up to a 6.5 on the finish, and I think that'll kind of even out my pretty low taste score. Yeah, and I think balance-wise, there's nothing special here. It's it's a six and a half on balance. The, The nose leads you to where you're going with the rest of the experience it just kind of sours by the end yeah i don't even know if it leads you to where you're going it it almost like it teases you with a very sweet pleasant fruity experience and then it's like let me rip that rug out from underneath you <laughs> pretty immediately i'll give it a six on balance um and i feel like that's even being probably a little bit too generous to this but i think when we get into value is where I'll I'll most likely ding this some more. I remember paying at least $40 for this, Brad, and that was at a discounted price. So what are you seeing it at online? Uh, in general, I'm seeing it between like $50 and $65. Wow. Yeah, so that's, we, we that's could too call much. it like a $55, $58 bottle. You could get at least some products from Aberlauer for this price. Oh, dude. And yeah. they are all better than what we just drank. And so, yep. uh, yeah, I mean, I know it's 10 years old, but like, that's how scotch works. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> 10 yep. years, a 10 year age statement is like a dime a dozen in Scotland. So yeah. I'm just going to give this a five out of 10 on value. 
Yeah, I think it's a five out of ten value. There, there's not enough going on here to make it worth that price, especially when, as you said, you can go buy some Aberlauer, you can go buy some Glenmorangie, mm-hmm. you could, you could go buy some Nomad Outland, Bob, and oh. you would have a much better time. You certainly could, man. You know, it's a bummer because I really was hoping that this would end up being a good random pair up with True Lies. Uh, I don't think it is, man. I think True Lies is a way better movie than this is a whiskey. Yeah. I'm coming out to a 30 out of 50 on this. I'm a point higher than you, Bob. Mm. All right. So we're coming out to a 30.5 out of 50 on average or just a 61 out of 100. This is pretty low scoring comparatively, Brad, to the rest of the whiskeys we've had this season. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. I, we have had a really good run of whiskey. It's okay. It, we're bound to hit a dud every once in mm-hmm. a while. But still, you know, 31, 30 out of 50, this isn't a terrible whiskey. It's just not quite up to snuff, especially considering all the competition that they have over there in Scotland. All right, man. Well, let's get back to some greener pastures than these and start talking some more about true lies. What do you say? Dude. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) I love this movie, man. All right, everybody. That was Glenroth's 10, a whiskey that leaves me saying, Glenroth's, you're fired. (laughs) Okay. First of all, this is not a movie where there are a lot of catchphrases employed, but I love that that Cameron was like, I can't get to the end of the movie without a close up of Arnold giving the cheesiest line in human history. And you know what? I'm glad he did. Well, and the the wild thing is that he actually had a team of writers write the script for the film. He didn't like any of the jokes in it and was like, "Well, I'm just going to rewrite it myself." And I and he only kept like one or two jokes in there from the writers, and that was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the one that made it through. <laughs> He's like, actually, that give that guy a raise. Whoever wrote that line. Yes. <laughs> Everybody else is fired, except for that guy. Right. Brad, it's time for me to get fired, because uh, this week, I have a feeling that you are going to get your revenge for two successful weeks in a row at our next game, which we call Two Facts and a Falsehood. Brad is going to try to stump you, Bob, to our right, and what is wrong? Two facts and a falsehood. Two facts and a falsehood is the part of the program where Brad presents me with three items about the making of this film. All of them are presented as fact. One of them is made up by Brad, and I have to figure out which one that is. Now, we have briefed Vince on this already. He is going to be my lifeline if I get stumped. The caveat is, if Vince helps me to victory, I get one win in the win column. But if he steers me into a loss... I get double penalized for it. I'm going to get two losses. So, dude, you better not mess this up for me is all I'm saying. Yeah, I don't know know. if I can handle the guilt. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Brad, hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. Fact number one, Arnold Schwarzenegger had a nearly fatal accident on set during the horse riding scene when his horse got startled and ran out of control. Schwarzenegger managed to slide off the horse, but did it near a 30 foot drop off. His personal stuntman saw what was happening and was able to grab him before he went over the ledge. Fact number two, Arnold Schwarzenegger's contract stipulated that he would receive top billing and that Jamie Lee Curtis would be placed after the title card. 
Director James Cameron, however, saw this as a domestic drama and asked Schwarzenegger if he would be willing to share the title card. Schwarzenegger agreed, which Curtis later described as a, quote, real mensch move on his part. Fact number three, Tom Arnold was hand-selected by Bill Udovic, a producer at 20th Century Fox who was good friends with Tom, for the role of Gibson. James Cameron was not initially a fan of the idea due to Arnold's highly publicized divorce from Roseanne Barr, but relented after seeing the chemistry between he and Schwarzenegger. Hmm. These are good ones, Brad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I am going to say, I'm pretty sure that number one is true. And I say that because I have seen like 10 variations of this story online. It seems like a classic Schwarzenegger anecdote because the reason I say there's 10 variations is the height of the fall that he almost fell from seems to keep going up with like the number of times he tells it. <laughs> Cause I, I read online that he said it was a 90 foot drop. 30 sounds more, more likely, but when it's Arnold, he's like, oh, it was a 90 foot drop, you know? So <laughs> 90 is a lot of feet. <laughs> yeah, guys. I, that seems implausible. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and say number one is true. Uh, I know that Tom Arnold had been quoted as saying that like he had to audition for this movie and he didn't have any expectation of getting it. So number three is kind of standing out to me as a potential falsehood because I don't know that he was hand selected for this movie. Vince, uh, what are your thoughts on especially like on number two and three? Am I am I going wrong here or are you with me? I mean, you you said that you've heard a variation of one before, because to me, one stands out as the one that's more plausible to make up. The the Tom Arnold part seems way too specific uh, to make up, but maybe I'm wrong on that. Um, (laughs) To me, it's between the 30 foot fall and the billing uh, for which one's false, because those are. Those are the things that seem more plausible to make up is actors fighting over billing and someone talking about almost taking. And the other thing about the story of him almost taking a fall is like there are times when I know there are times when like it's clearly not Arnold doing the stunt. And those are usually during the horse scenes in this. That was when I noticed that it was a stunt double the most often. And that's Mm -hmm. part of the reason that one stands out. But uh, yeah. Brad, number two was the, the billing one, right? Yes. The reason that that one sounds plausible to me is we just did Batman a few weeks ago on this podcast, a film which famously features only one name above the title, and it is Jack Nicholson, who is not Batman. (laughs) So so not the titular character. I totally buy that Schwarzenegger would have it in his contract, especially because he was in this like years long dick measuring contest with Stallone at this point, and they were always trying to see who could one up each other. But to me, that's why it seems plausible to make up because that is a thing that you would uh, like uh, assume uh, happened behind the scenes. I think I'm going to go. I don't know if I'm galaxy braining too much on that, but uh, I was going to say, I think I'm going to go against Vince's best wishes here because if I go with Vince and he costs me two games, then the man will never be invited back on our show. And if we're going to lose, I'd rather do it on my own accord. So that we can maintain our relationship. So I'm going to go with number three as the falsehood. So here's the thing, though, Bob, like you still got his advice, which means that if you chose wrong here. Oh, are you counting that as? Mm. I mean, you you fully asked him for advice. I I think that's like 
the the phone a friend has been called. Well, shoot, and I already locked in my answer, so I'm. This is really, really gonna suck if I both <laughs> spurned Vince and got it wrong on my own. Oh man, if there was ever a time I would like to to lie to you and tell you that you were wrong, this is it. But Bob, you are correct. I did it, man. <laughs> Vince so the started fake at the one bottom. Was, which 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 one was the fake one? The uh, Tom Arnold being hand selected. Okay, all right, all right. So I read a little tidbit. Uh, and I say I read a tidbit. You know how when you watch something on Amazon Prime that has that X-ray thing, which is mm-hmm, just a mm-hmm. fantastic feature of Amazon Prime, but it had a little tidbit of trivia pop up that in the scene where Arnold thinks Jamie Lee Curtis is cheating on him and says it to Tom Arnold, he says something about like, my ex-wife took the ice cubes out of my house. What kind of sick person does that? It was it was a story that Tom Arnold told James Cameron that Roseanne had just done to him when she moved out. (laughs) And he thought it was so funny. He was like, we're going to put that in the movie. And folks, that's the kind of guy James Cameron is, publicly airing other people's divorce stories. And man, oh man, what a moment on on film. (laughs) It, It really is a great moment. Like that, that's one of those lines and and like Tom Arnold delivers it with such conviction that you're like, that's not a movie anymore. <laughs> he is not acting. I mean, that's relatable though, because I feel like in the situations where I've had like a bad landlord or whatever, I'm like, all right, I'm not going to leave here without taking every single light bulb out of the fixtures and keeping them for myself. <laughs> you know, like, have you ever done that before? Because I definitely have. Oh my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> Brad, I know that we said that this is a, a film that we really love and that we have very little uh, negative to say about it. I don't really have many nitpicks because, again, it's a comedy. Like, everything that's implausible can be explained away by the fact that it is a comedy. I will say, uh, one one note that I took down, and it was just a medical question for the two of you, how easily does the human neck break exactly? Because my guy Arnold is just, with with the slightest flick of a wrist... It reminds me of like there used to be a a comedian Will Sasso on Mad TV. He would do a Steven Seagal impression, and every skit ended with him just breaking everyone's neck in the skit. Mm-hmm. And it was it was as easy as Arnold is doing it here. So I don't know how many necks you guys have broken in your day, but like it it seemed like these are some very flimsy you know vertebrae. I'm not a doctor. I've never broken any necks. I am a jiu-jitsu black belt, so I have choked a few people unconscious before, and my take on this is that it's very hard to break someone's neck. That's uh yeah. <laughs> Bob, I will answer your question with a question. Yeah. Depend I think it depends on who is doing the neck breaking. Mm. That wasn't a question, but I uh, noted, noted, Brad. Who, I think who's... if it's a frail old woman and Arnold is doing the neck breaking, then like, yeah, maybe. Sure. But I think yeah. just like a normal like army guy that's trying to kill Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think it's going to be pretty hard to break that guy's neck. Yep. Also, the dude that he fights in the bathroom is jacked. Oh, yeah. That guy yeah. was like as big as, as Schwarzenegger. <laughs> oh, bigger. Oh, he was huge. Yeah. I was like blown away. I was like, how did you find somebody larger than Arnold for this movie. And that's the great thing about the action in this film is, again, it's it's staged really well. It is taken seriously in the moment. But whatever your preferred flavor of on-film action is, it's in this movie somewhere. Like, there is espionage. Mm-hmm. There's chases on snowmobiles. There's hand-to-hand combat. But then there's also, like, a moment at the end of the movie where 
uh, you know, they're they're trying to drive on the bridge from the Florida Keys with a bomb in the back of this moving truck. And the bridge blows out in front of them and the terrorists are teetering on the edge and like a pelican lands on the front of the <laughs> truck. And listen, the truck falls four and a half feet into this water. Like it, <laughs> it does not fall very far and it just barely kisses this water and it explodes in the largest fireball imaginable. And I'm just like, you know what? Yeah, like, let's do that. That's mm-hmm. that's how trucks work, right? I just love it, man. Cameron's just pulling out like, Everything from his bag of tricks. And again, this is like the first movie ever made to reportedly have a budget of over a hundred million dollars. And I will say every dollar of that money is on screen somewhere. Like they did not yeah, waste you see that money. Absolutely. And I think that's part of why they wired that truck with explosives. Cause they were like, we we've got the funds. Let's blow one more thing up. <laughs> we've got an extra million dollars. <laughs> what do we want to spend it on? Yeah. That bird scene is so good because it, it's like a riff on an old Simpsons episode, which I think Conan O'Brien wrote. It's like the snowplow episode. And there's one at one point where Homer's snowplow is like teetering on the edge of a cliff and uh, he turns the radio dial all the way uh, towards the side of the mountain and it, and it like corrects itself and he keeps driving <laughs> the snowplow. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's and also a, a moment in this sequence which made me laugh really hard because Arnold is like on the comms talking to Marines in a fighter jet and he's like, shoot these trucks down. And they say, if we shoot these, it's not going to set off the nuke, is it? And he goes, nah. And then he looks over at Tom Arnold and it's just like, I don't, I don't know, man, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love that he's like that careless with his job. He's like, I don't know, man, let's let's find out. Let's just go beat up some terrorists and feel better. <laughs> I'm telling you, like Cameron wanted you to remember that these guys are pieces of shit deep down, even though he was making a fun movie about them. All right. One more nitpick, Brad. And it is uh, it is a person that I will nitpick about. And it is an actress that is only known from the early 1990s. And her name is Tia Carrere. She is uh, perhaps best known as the girlfriend in Wayne's World. And she shows up here, you know, just being the Wayne's World girlfriend, but the bad version of that. And I got to say, man, here's the thing about Tia Carrere. uh, Not really a very good actress, like really over the top. She has a fist fight in the back of a limo with Jamie Lee Curtis at the end of the movie. Sister is just going for it. But but also like the movie is pitched so high at that point that it kind of works. I don't know, Brad, what's your... (laughs) What's your take was, on her? I was going to say, I don't know if anybody could go too big in this movie. Yeah. Like Cameron, Cameron has set the bar high enough for going big that all the actors were just like, well, we can't not do what Jim is doing. Like we got to go big. <laughs> he, that's that's what he needs from us. Uh, I thought she was fine. I, like I didn't, I wasn't blown away by her performance, but I, I thought it fit the film. She has like an extra textual quality to her where she's always like a little bit over the top, but that's kind of her, like she's kind of the over the top, like babe character usually mm-hmm. in, in these movies. The acting itself didn't bother me, but the uh, the colored contacts uh, ab- absolutely did. I feel like, what did she really need? I don't know. Colored contacts always bug me because they're very um, obvious, distracting looking. Yeah. Though, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you saw the Fablemans, but like they got... 
a little kid who had different colored eyes than the older kid. And so they had to give one of them fake contact lenses. And to me, it's like, okay, just make us accept the suspend the disbelief of them having different colored eyes. Cause that's easier to do than watching someone with colored contact lenses for. Yeah. And, and like from scene to scene, I wouldn't have even noticed what color that kid's eyes were. Like mm-hmm. when, when they're yeah. not having attention, I say this them. as a colorblind man, like I'm actually like <laughs> red, green, colorblind. So the color wouldn't bother me, but when I see fake contacts, like, come on, <laughs> that's funny, man. I do love Brad. There's just so many little sight gags in this movie to go along with the funny lines. But like I, this, so this movie gets a lot of crap when it comes out and to this day about like the depiction of the terrorists and like people of Middle Eastern descent. And it gets it gets a lot of crap for the caricatures that it draws. I, you know, I don't I don't really know how much time we need to spend talking about that. It is a debate that is being had. I think that it also like this is a comedy in which we we want to see the terrorists be dumb and get thwarted. And so, like, yes, they're being they're being painted in broad strokes. I will also say I laughed every single time that the lead terrorist guy tried to do something threatening and had everything undercut. Like when Elijah Dushku took the key out of the thing and he's like, we will turn this key. And they're like, what key? I laughed like a little kid. It was hilarious to me (laughs) when he's giving his like manifesto and the battery in the camcorder dies. Hilarious. Like I, I was on board. That was probably my favorite. Yeah. I was on board for all that stuff, man. I just, I like it when they make bad guys look dumb. And I think Cameron did a really good job of that here. Yeah, I feel like the the xenophobia is like partly satirical in this movie. And I also feel like it was um, crazy prescient in that this is a movie where the evil organization is called Crimson Jihad that came out, you know, seven years before 9-11. And, uh, and it also has like comically bumbling jihadists uh i don't know how many years before four lions but uh yeah Mm. like it it hits all those notes and i don't think i don't think it was you know i i think it was just like doing action movie tropes in that way and i don't know for me it worked yeah for sure well and it's something that it's it's easy to come back to you know 10 20 years later and be like hey yeah we don't like that and mm-hmm. I know that there yeah. were people at the time of it coming out that weren't a fan of the depiction. But overall, as you said, the movie is not about portraying a specific, uh, you know, ethnicity as dumb. It's about portraying bad guys as dumb. Yeah. And that that's funny and it works. And, 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 and I, right. I think that that's the yeah. key. Hollywood always has its sort of like flavor of the month bad guys. And it's like. What's going on geopolitically in the world? Okay, that is our point of reference to the real world. We're going to make the bad guys be this nationality. Is it good that they do that? No. But like if this movie had been made six years earlier than it was, they would have been Russian bad guys. Like it's just that's just how it it happens in Hollywood. And so like, yeah, I, I understand the debate. I understand the accusations. But like, yeah, I mean, I, look at look at Die Hard. Right. Yes. It's like Eastern yeah. European you know, East Germany, bad guys. Yeah. And then that's a hundred percent earnest. Whereas I feel like this is partly a satire of the sort of inherent jingoism and xenophobia of the action movie genre. Mm -hmm. So like it also, in some ways I feel like it works as a criticism of that because it's like, I don't think it's meant to be a hundred percent taken at face value. When you take Jim Cameron's 
overall like stories that he tells you know that he's not making fun of a minority ethnicity like 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 that's clearly what he's not what he's doing and we you know you don't have to just watch this film when you watch all of his stuff you kind of get the picture yeah well and again it, it brings me back to the last note that i took on this film was the only way that you justify the inherent silliness of this plot is by making some of the best action sequences of all time. Like you have to pull that off to make this movie work even a little bit. And I think it says so much about Cameron as perhaps the greatest action filmmaker of all time that he makes any of this balancing act work. And guys, that's going to be my segue into our last segment of the day, which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's Make It a Double is the part of the show where we pick a movie to pair up with this one to make the perfect double feature. Brad, I'm going to go ahead and go first, because uh, <laughs> the first thing I wrote down here was, I don't, I couldn't think of a movie, and I said, you know, it kind of sounds like James Cameron heard the pina colada song and was like i could make a movie out of that you know that song if you like an action movie oh yeah because that whole song is like the the worst like if you stop and think about the lyrics to that song like it's a guy who wants to cheat on his wife takes out a personal ad and then his wife answers it thinking that he's a different guy that she can cheat with and then they just have a good laugh and they're like, I never knew that you liked pina coladas. That's this movie. Like, I don't think my wife and I would have a good laugh about that. No, I think that would be <laughs> I, I pretty much I the end think, of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that would be a, a really tough conversation. So well, anyway, if she I, answered it. You couldn't yell at each other because you both like are equally at fault. That's right. the beauty of the song. I love in the song, too, where where they smile at each other and she says, ah, it's you like. Like, as if she was secretly hoping. It's like, no, you weren't. Come on. You're not covering for anything right now. So anyway, uh, my original Let's Make It a Double was just listen to the Pina Colada song. <laughs> Brad, I think I'm going to pair this with another movie that is all about hiding your secret identity from your spouse, leading to an epic team up where bad guys are defeated and shit gets blown up. And it is a Pixar film by Brad Bird called The Incredibles. I don't know when the last time you guys watched The Incredibles was. It is truly and earnestly one of the best superhero films ever. It is unbelievably good. And I didn't realize the extent to which Brad Bird kind of went to the well of true lies to get some of the tone for that movie. But it is like, for me, I can't think of a better movie to pair up with true lies than The Incredibles. Yeah, that Bob, that's an absolutely incredible pick. I freaking love that movie like top to bottom from frozone and and uh mr incredible's relationship to just everything going on in that movie y you have it all man yeah what a what a great film i think for my let's make it a double i'm gonna pick a movie that objectively i haven't seen in a long time it's probably like a six and a half seven out of ten kind of movie but it hits a lot of the similar beats as True Lies, and it has a lot of the similar satirical uh, feel, and specifically of action movies, but more specifically of Mission Impossible movies. I'm going to recommend Night and Day hmm. with uh, with Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. Wow. Doug, is that Doug Lyman, yeah? I think yes, so. Yes, it is. 
Here's the thing about that movie. Every review of that film I have ever seen gave it two and a half out of four stars. Yeah, it's and, like a six and a half out of ten kind of movie. And because yeah. of that, I've never watched it. And like, I know I'd probably like it, but there's just something about going into it knowing like the ceiling on this is 6.5 that I've just never gotten around to watching it. It seems like a fun little movie. <sighs> that That's the thing about it. It it has a similar vibe as True Lies. Not as good as True Lies, to mm. be clear. But it has that similar joking vibe with some pretty good action sequences. It's a film that I enjoy. Yeah, I feel like there are so many movies that tried to do like comedic comedy and then action scenes that were supposed to be badass. And like in my mind, like True Lies is maybe the only movie that pulls it off. Mm -hmm. So many movies tried to do that. And, you know, so many of them died, died trying, I guess. All right, Vince, what is your let's make it a double? Oh, can I have two? Because I have two I have two thoughts on this. Like, yeah. okay, so one of them, obviously I've mentioned it, like Lethal Weapon 2. Like this movie very much feels like James Cameron saw Lethal Weapon 2 and was like, all right, I gotta up my game. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold my beer. I'm gonna one up Joel Silver and I'm gonna, you know, make this movie where People do a building jump into a pool and it's going to be funny and uh, the action's going to be fun and it's going to be great. So that's one of them. The other movie that I thought of uh, while I was watching this is Commando because I feel like Commando is sort of the unintentionally funny version of True Lies. Like that is Arnold at, you know, peak 80s Arnold where he's you know, just being a buff guy carrying uh, trees in the forest until some bad guys come along and they kidnap his daughter played by Alyssa Milano. I even feel like Alyssa Milano is almost, I feel like Eliza Dushku was almost like a riff on uh, Alyssa Alyssa Milano (laughs) as Arnold's daughter. Um, But I feel like, I feel like True Lies takes all of the, uh, the winks uh, like i don't think commando was necessarily winking like intentionally and there's like an intentionality to true lies where it's it's like it's like a self-aware version of commando so i feel like they make it interesting and you really see how far arnold has come as an actor in in true lies compared to commando bob i'm gonna i'm gonna follow vince's lead i'm gonna recommend a second movie are you ready do it yes the nice guys Oh yeah, that's a good one. I I think the nice mm-hmm. guys would be a great fit, like a modern feeling true lies parallel. Uh, I think that would be a really fun evening. Brad, okay, before we get final scores, you are you are a I don't want to call you a James Cameron skeptic. You were never fully bought into the cult of Cameron before. That's because Avatar is not a great movie. <laughs> I'm not I'm not saying that was the one that had to convert you. Like you watched Aliens, you watched T2, and you were like, I get it, but like, I'm still not all the way there. Are you all the way there now? Part one of my question. And part two, where does True Lies fall on your personal Cameron rankings so far? Man, I would put it, I think I would put it just behind T2. Mm. Like, I, I think that the dramatic element of T2 gives it a higher ceiling than what you have here. 
And I like I don't know if that's fair or not. I know that people give comedy a, a bad rap in, in that it can't be as deep as other films. And I don't know if that's always true. But I would feel like T2 has a better, like I said, a higher ceiling. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, though, man, True Lies is a banger. Like, <laughs> like Cameron just knocks the action out of the park, the comedy out of the park. I, I think that I have come around to the point where I would call James Cameron a legend in mm. the film directing community. He was waiting on that. That was like the last thing that he needed to hear, Brad, was he your my approval. Stamp of approval. Yeah. He's at his little garden down in New Zealand, just like, <laughs> oh, finally, I can feel the psychic energy is changed. Yeah, I was going to say, he's like, I'm at peace. And then he just dissolves into the ether, you know, like <laughs> he like, goes down into the lava. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to say. He, <laughs> he puts thumb his up thumb up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, let's give this movie some final scores. And we'll start with our guest, Vince. Where are you falling on True Lies? 20 out of 10. I mean, yeah, that final scene, shooting a bad guy who's hanging on a missile through a building, hitting a helicopter full of other terrorists. I don't think I've ever seen a better action sequence than that. And mm-hmm. just like, and it's like he's he's doing it, he's doing it as a joke, just to prove to you that he can, like, he can make a better action movie than you can and do it for laughs. Like, mm-hmm. incredible. All right, Brad, let's hear it. New new cult of Cameron member. Brad G. Oh, man. I, I'm not a big fan of being in cults, Bob. Uh, <laughs> you, sound, you sound like you speak from experience. Like I've been burned <laughs> one too many times. <laughs> oh, man. I am going to give this movie a nine and a half out of ten. Yes. It's a blast. It's fun. It's He just takes you on the wildest ride. I think if he cuts about 15 to 20 minutes out, this is a 10 out of 10 film. Here's the thing, Brad. Every time our friend Patrick Willems comes on the show with us, he convinces me to give a movie a higher rating than I... I literally got on the horn with you last <laughs> week and I said, I'm going to give The Fugitive a 9. And that was because I know that like objectively it probably is a 9. I think my enjoyment level of The Fugitive is an 8.5 and I gave it a 9.5 speaking my truth. I am with Vince on this. I like true lies better than I like the fugitive. Is it as lean and mean and structurally perfect? No, I don't care. It's super enjoyable and it is a 9.5 out of 10. It is so freaking good, man. Yeah. Here's, here's another thing we, I didn't even mention. This might sound really silly. I, loved the way this movie ended like like not even the whole thing where they catch bill paxton and make him pee his pants again literally just the moment they start tangoing and the way the camera falls back and the credits just start playing Mm. and it like it leaves them in this place where they are moving forward with their life together unified like they're paying no mind to tom arnold in the van and the the credits even like, you know, normally credits play right over the center of the screen. The credits even move out of the way to make room for their new life. Mm. And I just there was something about it that felt so artistic that I'm like, you don't get that with a normal director. Mm. Uh, like he even mm-hmm. cared about how this movie 
ends as the credits roll. And I there was something about that that I was just like, what a great movie. Well, there you have it, folks. It's a 9.5 from me and Brad. It is a 20 from Vince, which is a first on this podcast. We've never had a 20 out of 10 given before. So that's a I mean, if a any movie deserves it, it's true life. <laughs> Let's be honest. We want to say thank you again to our friend Vince Mancini for joining us today. Vince, where can people find you and what are you up to these days? I have a couple of podcasts. Uh, you can find them both at patreon.com slash frotcast. That's F-R-O-T cast. Uh, we have the Frotcast, which is just a good hang comedy podcast. And then we also uh, have a podcast called Pod Yourself the Wire, where we go through every episode of The Wire, um, talk about them uh, individually. Uh, the, the name doesn't make any sense because it started out as a Sopranos podcast called uh, Pod Yourself a Gun after the Sopranos theme song. And we <laughs> just, uh, yeah, we applied that to The Wire. So you can check that out. I also uh, have a newsletter at Substack, vincemancini.substack.com. I uh, read about movies and and fun stuff like that. So yeah. Brad, we are going to go three for three next week in terms of having awesome guests on the show last week was patrick willems this week vince mancini next week we are joined by film critic bilga ibiri to talk about 1995's james bond masterpiece goldeneye what a great season brad who needs auteurs (laughs) when you can watch true lies and the fugitive and goldeneye back to back to back dude i i am so excited because you know i saw i've seen the fugitive had never seen True Lies. I've never seen Goldeneye. And I am just so, so excited. All right, guys, join us next week for Goldeneye. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.